Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Sara Pantuliano, the Chief Executive at ODI. Today I have the great pleasure of introducing a panel of colleagues who are engaged and, and, and committed to elevating the profile and presence of local actors in global development decision-making and to increase their access to resources. The title of our seminar is Localizing Aid. Why aren't we there yet? Um, I must admit I'm, I'm not a strong fan of the term localization. I've said it many times, I think, it implies a transitive action, you know, it implies that the global north can localize something that is inherently local, but let's use it as a shorthand for the purpose of this conversation. Uh, the localization agenda is intimately tied to the evolution of power, you know, to those who have traditionally not had access to such influence. That's something we are strongly committed to here at ODI. Our commitment to shifting power is among my highest priorities. We want those who have a more intimate lived experience of the realities of global challenges to be the driving force behind our research. And that encompasses all kinds of global challenges, whether they're facing down patriarchal norms, whether they're you know, dealing with conflict and displacement, adapting to drought and flood conditions, um, grappling with rising prices and employment uncertainty. It is those who are closer to these challenges that we want to really be guiding. We write and talk about. Um, our five-year strategy is, is committing us to transforming the ways in which ODI produces knowledge and shares knowledge. You know, we want to make sure that our work is produced through collaborative partnerships throughout our global network. So our goal is really to be driven and, and oriented by the energy and ideas of those who are closest to these you know, wicked problems that I was mentioning before. But of course, as you can all imagine, a change of this scale and magnitude can be resisted. Um, can be resisted openly or can be resisted indirectly. And it's proving really challenging to shift power when it comes to resources, to agency, to knowledge, even for the most committed organizations or well-intentioned leaders. So this seminar is, is squarely focused on discussing some of these bottlenecks, you know, some of these sources of resistance, from the perspective of funding institutions that are seeking to localize. Um, they are coming up with creative solutions, you know, how to remove these bottlenecks, how to at least mitigate against them. So I'm especially excited that we're going to have a discussion across different types of funders. You know, we'll be delving into what northern donors and philanthropic actors may be able to learn from each other in, in their own localization journeys. Um, let me take a moment to introduce our brilliant panelists that we have joining us. And then I'll hand over to my colleague Nilima Gurrajani. Nilima is a senior research fellow in our development and public finance team at ODI. She will set the scene for the seminar discussion and moderate the event. Um, but let me introduce our, our colleagues. So we are joined by Julia Rao. Julia is the manager of global internships and career placement at the Manx School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. She is particularly the author of a study of Canadian engagement with localization called Localization of International Assistance, Canadian International Development Organizations, Perspectives, Practices, Successes, and Challenges. Um, along with Julia, we have Rosie Pinnington. Rosie is a research associate at King's College London in the Department of Political Economy, but she's also the lead author of the ODI report, Why Aren't We There Yet? Understanding and Addressing Donor Barriers to Localization and Climate Adaptation. Joining us also is Peter Lohern. Peter is the CEO of the Coran Hilton Foundation. He has a very long and distinguished career working internationally for 
non-profits and foundations. So I'm not going to summarize because we'll be here for a very long time. But the main reason is with us today is because he has played a key role with the Hilton Foundation. Um, the, under his leadership, has really been working hard to move the dial to turn the discussion on localization from theory to practice. Um, also with us is Moses Esoba. Moses is the executive director of the Uganda National NGO Forum. Um, that is a civil society platform for governance and democracy influencing in Uganda. But Moses is also a member of the Reimagining INGOs, Ringo Social Lab. It's a group of practitioners that are aiming to reimagine NGOs through disruption, innovation, and systemic thinking. And last but not least, we're joined by Ola Kelly. Ola is a development specialist in, with the Development Cooperation Division at the Irish Department for Foreign Affairs, also known as Irish Aid. Uh, and she co-leads Irish Aid's policy engagement on locally-led development. With a fantastic group of colleagues for our discussion today. Without further ado, over to you, Nilima. Thanks so much, Sarah. Um, and um, I'd like to start with just a few um, housekeeping rules. Uh, we have a, a great turnout, great audience, and a fantastic set of panelists, um, but we only have an hour. So we need to try and keep our comments brief and we wanna have time for Q and A. Um, I especially wanna thank those who have joined um, us very early in the morning or very late in the day. Um, I think the, the response that we've had is that this is kind of a, a, an international uh, an audience. Um, and so really appreciate um, you joining us. Um, in terms of housekeeping, um, this webinar is part of a larger effort at ODI to bring evidence to bear on conversations with actors across the sector, across the official sector, the philanthropic sector, the activist civil society sector, um, and the research sector, to really debate key institutional and organizational evolutions in a very different world of aid giving. Um, in the chat, you'll see a link to, to the work that we're doing under the brand Donors in a Post-Aid World with a newsletter. Do sign up to stay top, on top of our events and our latest research. Um, also, just a second point on housekeeping terminology, um, I will be using the term Global South to refloor to global majority countries, not to ally differences between them, but because that is a term that is often used and rolls off my tongue certainly a little bit more easily than global majority countries. Um, when I speak of donors, I am talking about northern-based official funders of development. Um, we're making a deliberate attempt to focus on the northern ecosystem here, and when referring to philanthropy, I will make a direct reference to philanthropy. Um, and lastly, just for questions, we really welcome questions in the Q&A box. Please type them there, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. If we can't, feel free to drop me a line on an email, and I'll try and kind of muster an answer for you um, at a later date. So just to quickly set the scene, why do I think a conversation on donor barriers to localization is really important at this particular juncture? I guess I have three points to make here. The first is there are more and more formal commitments to localization that are being made. Um, the COVID crisis sort of initially kind of was the prompt for, for experiments in localization, let's say, um, and aligned with the Black Lives Matters movement, really for addressing kind of racism and power imbalances in the sector itself. Um, procedures that seemed impossible to modify were modified in an instant. Vast quantities of funds were rapidly redirected. Um, and that you can contrast to, to some of the, the, the kind of more limited success of the grand bargain um, agreement to localize um, finance. Um, the idea that we needed to make localized uh, funding, sorry, as local as possible and as international as only necessary. 
um, the goal of achieving 25% of humanitarian funding to local and national responders by 2020 has proven a challenge. In 2022, only 1.2% of overall assistance was delivered um, to those local actors. Um, we do have do a donor statement on supporting locally led development um, signed at the GPDC meeting in December 2022 um, with 15 foundations joining sub subsequently, including um, the Conrad Hilton Foundation in 2023 with commitments to shift and share power um, to channel high quality funding as directly and as local as possible. Um, and really for those donors to publicly advocate for locally led development by sharing platforms such as this one, for example. Um, so I think there are these formal commitments now in place that really suggest the need for a conversation in terms of how they're going to be delivered on. The second point is that there are risks that these commitments and the expectations on the donor community um, are too great and exceed their capacity to actually deliver. Um, I think the reality of the implementation challenge is starting to bite. Um, localization is hard for all sorts of reasons, as we'll get into in this session. I think the fact that the OECD is conducting a peer review at the minute um, to really learn from DAC members' policies and mechanism systems and practices for enabling locally-led development is, is very promising. Um, I think there is no doubt an effort in the localization space to focus on managerial practice, funder policy, reporting requirements, risk tolerance. Um, little less so on tackling some of the structural issues um, like racism and power imbalances of the donor recipient logic. And so, you know, localization is not as existential a threat perhaps as decolonization, with the latter raising much more fundamental questions about power. But even so, it's still hard, um, even with that instrumental rationale um, that you will be able to get more bang for your, your spending. Um, it is very difficult. Um, but localization then becomes an important demonstration of donors' good faith. Uh, but it also risks leaving them exposed as it sits against other political and policy goals and institutional rules. Um, and take it to its logical conclusion, an expansive understanding of localization can really feel threatening to organizational longevity, credibility, and survival. Um, I The last quick one I wanted to say is we want to encourage lesson learning. And this is also why this is a very timely seminar, um, because there is a real risk that localization just becomes the next fad in the way participatory development um, arguably became a fad. Um, um, so I think, you know, learning from across from others across silos from the INGO and the philanthropic community that are perhaps further advanced ahead of the curve, um, learning from what Southern actors can tell us and Southern civil society activists. Um, there's a lot of initiative and a lot of enthusiasm. The shifting the power of the summit in December was now enthusiasm in those sectors. I think we see much more mixed sectors in the official donor community. So with that, I'd like to really congratulate our, our panelists for really um, joining us in what we hope will be an open and honest conversation um, that really gets us into some of the discussion, these barriers and some of the learnings that come from there. Um, so we have two presentations that are really research-based presentations that are focused on, on, on survey data, on, on qualitative um, in interviews that are helping us understand these barriers and what can be done to surmount them. And with that, I will start with uh, Rosie, perhaps, who is um, today launching a new paper from ODI, which will also be in the link in the chat. Thanks so much. Rosie, over to you. Thank you very much, Nalima. Um, so uh, Nalima's given a 
an excellent context uh, for this study. So I'm going to start with where we started. Um, despite widespread enthusiasm, as Nalima has outlined, progress has been slow and significant barriers remain. In our paper, we examine the barriers that bilateral donors face in their efforts to promote locally led practices in climate adaptation, where specific commitments have been made to meet the principles for locally led adaptation. We examine climate adaptation initiatives in, in, in Uganda, drawing on interviews with three bilateral donors, the US, the UK and Sweden, as well as their intermediary partners and Ugandan stakeholders, government, civil society and academia. And I should say at this point that when I refer to a local actor, I am encompassing all, all, of, all of those different actors, right from national level government to, to civil society to academia. Um, so we, we, we don't have a, a narrow definition of local actor here, and it's certainly not just subnational actors either. So in our study, we found five central barriers affecting donor localization efforts. The first is risk aversion. Um, there is a perception that working more direct, directly with local actors can pose additional risks. In Uganda, public sector corruption has contributed to an environment of limited donor trust, which has reduced opportunities to implement adaptation initiatives via, financial, uh, via government uh, financial and delivery systems. The second barrier we identify um, are those connected to administrative challenges. So locally led approaches can often be more resource and staff intensive, especially when working with organizations that are unfamiliar with donor systems and requirements. There are also, um, we also found that donors are still developing their own skills and capacities related to locally led adaptation. And these include soft skills involved in um, processes like co-creation and facilitation. The third barrier that we identify is dual accountabilities. Donors face split constituencies um, where they are accountable to actors in both uh, domestic, donor domestic and local contexts. We found, as a number of studies have, have also found, that donor accountability is often skewed towards its own domestic constituents. And in Uganda specifically, this has affected the continuity and predictability of funding for local actors, including government and civil society. So fourth, we identify divergent values. The values that donors pursue in their development cooperation, including gender equality, the promotion of democracy or liberal economics can come into tension with local norms and practices. And donors can often be pursuing active, you know, change in those local norms as well. In Uganda, we identified this in the challenges connected to LGBTQ plus rights in particular, which have been framed as a Western imposition in, in um, political discourse. Finally, the fundamental barrier we identify is, is power asymmetries. We find that the unequal power dynamic between local actors and donors is the fundamental constraint at the center of localization efforts. And this manifests in how and the extent to which local knowledge and capability is valued. So to overcome these barriers and ensure that localization commitments can be realized in global adaptation efforts, we offer five general recommendations for donors, local and international partners, as well as climate advocates. The first is to strengthen donor capacities and shift mindsets. So local capacity is often highlighted as, as a challenge to donor localization efforts. 
but our research showed that donors have capacity strengthening needs as well. These exist at both the organizational level, um, including the need for new approaches to, to managing risk and due diligence, as well as at the individual level. So this comes back to the, the soft skills that we mentioned around shifting mindsets to becoming more humble, flexible, and moving towards more self-reflective practice as well. Our second recommendation is on enhancing the access to quality finance. For instance, through streamlining and simplifying funding requirements. So we, we found that donors are thinking a lot about how they can kind of increase their ability to, to fund organizations that may not be able to meet their requirements, but are not necessarily reflecting on their own need to streamline and change some of these requirements. Um, and then we also looked at, under this recommendation, exploring options to fund um, local actors um, as, as local intermediaries as well. Third, create more space for local agency and decision-making. But this is really about ensuring that leadership and shifting power is at the center of localization efforts. And we highlight that this can happen even when working with international intermediary partners as well. So fourth, we, we identify the need to track localization progress in climate goals and instruments. And finally, to reconceptualize how local actor capacity is defined, moving beyond a narrow focus on the ability to manage donor grants and, and considering and valuing all of the kind of plethora of other local capabilities that exist in terms of contextual knowledge, relationships, um, accountability to constituents, but also thinking about the broader society beyond even the, um, the specific development program or climate adaptation initiative. That's over to you, Nalima. Thanks, Rosie. And I'll, I'll pass it on to, to Julia to talk about her study. Thanks, Nalima, and thank you, Rosie. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're calling in from. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about the study I conducted in 2022 on Canadian International Development Organization's perspectives and practices on localization. So the perspective today that I'm sharing is on Canadian international development sector's feedback on localization. I'm going to call them INGOs moving forward and kind of lumping them with um, the, you know, the broader conversation around INGOs, keeping in mind that often INGOs are intermediaries and considered sometimes an impediment towards localization. I won't be focusing in on that today, but I will be sharing their perspectives on donor barriers. So the study looked at five dimensions of localization, and today I'll be focusing on the funding dimension, which unsurprisingly was considered uh, one of the most or the most challenging uh, dimension of localization and the least operational. And this is obviously significant as that one of the key commitments to the grand bargain is to increase direct funding to local actors. Um, so this brings us back to the donor barriers because of what I learned, um, these funding challenges are coming down from the top down in many intersecting ways. And the two most frequently emphasized were the donor compliance measures underpinned by racial and ethnocentric biases, as well as project-based funding modalities that often arise from these compliance measures. Um, 
I won't dig too deep into the barriers. I think uh, we know a lot about them, but donor compliance measures create restrictive funding modalities and impede direct funding, access, access to unrestricted funding, and um, it impacts the quality of funding by limiting core costs, as well as the ease to which funds can be utilized and pivoted when needed, which when we're thinking of fragile states in emergency situations, when we're thinking of COVID is really critical. The other frequently cited challenge was the project-based funding model, which is mostly linked to short-term grants and rigid funding modalities. And for anyone who works in the international assistance sector, they'll know that um, these project-based fundings can change based on government policy, based on changing government parties, as well as shifting geopolitical allegiances and environments. Um, it was increasing, it was um, cited frequently that projects are becoming larger in scale and uh, more short term, which benefits donors because they all have a greater ease of financial oversight and project management, but have at the same time having funds exclusively time bound for thematically specific projects limits innovation, limits the ability to work with diverse local actors and crucially stifles small grassroots organizations who do not have the size of staff or the capabilities to bring on staff for short periods of time. So with these key barriers in mind, many INGOs highlighted that their strength in the sector was actually with their partnerships with local actors. And because localization is a long game and a lot of these international NGOs will be key stepping stones to creating enabling environments and the soft infrastructure needed. Um, I wanna focus in on some of the key elements uh, that they bring to the table to support, uh, to, to support uh, alleviating some of the donor um, barriers that impede localization. And I also wanna mention that the relationship between INGOs and donors goes both ways um, and both will need to provide necessary pressure to push the localization agenda forward. Uh, in the study, three roles that INGOs showcased as part of their unique value in contributing to localization efforts. The first was that they play an intermediary role that can also advocate for improved localization. In Canada, we see this as the pushback from the sector on structural barriers embedded in Canadian tax laws and uh, pushback against project-based development models that limit the scope and breadth of the localization agenda. A good example is that the sector has actually had really effective efforts to challenge the Income Tax Act and uh, Direction and Control, which is a CR, um, which is a tax-related uh, function, has been uh, shifted because of the sector's pushback. They also can be fundraisers and campaigners. Um, there was an emphasis on the need to increase funding and especially long-term and flexible funding. And they saw themselves as um, potential fundraisers for their partners in the global South. And 50% of the participants said that they encourage and facilitate direct contact between partners and donors. And the last one is um, that they can support enabling environments for locally led development to become the norm. Um, from the participants' perspective, this can mean many things. That could be standing in solidarity with and advocating for local actors on critical issues on an international platform, sharing relevant knowledge and capacity building efforts in a complementary manner, and uh, lastly, ensuring that their local partners have greater voice within the sector to influence policy and decisions. So this study revealed a wealth of practical learning from participants on localization. Many participants spoke of years of forging solidarity and long-term relationships with partners. Um, so they come with a lot of experience. That said, relying on the goodwill of engaged 
INGOs is not sufficient. And of course, greater resources, leadership, and official guidance on localization has to come from the donors and government agencies themselves to push forward this agenda and facilitate localization, keeping in mind that they're working with the collaborative, highly knowledgeable, and engaged sector. So I said a lot in a short amount of time, and I, I look forward to engaging in the Q&A. Thanks, Julia. Um, we'll now move on to our, our discussants. Um, and I, I say discussants very loosely because, um, you know, we, we're not expecting you to, to know those papers intimately, but if you have any quick reactions to uh, what's been said so far, um, but, you know, also, you know, I have sort of a particular question to steer you as well. So I'll, I'll start with Orla um, from Irish Aid. Orla, um, you know, what stumbling I blocks has Irish aid um, faced in its efforts to, to localize and and how uh, have those barriers been meaningfully overcome? And and if not, have they been tolerated? Um, do we need to, to, to just tolerate them? So I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Orla. Thanks so much, Nalima. Um, just to, to start by caveating this a small bit with the fact that we're still very much on our localization journey in Irish aid and still figuring out the roadblocks and the barriers that we need to overcome. We actually recently participated in the OECD DAC peer learning exercise that you mentioned earlier. Um, so a team came over and did lots of interviews and really helped us to unpack a lot of the assumptions that we had internally about our barriers, risk, for example, etc. So that was just a really good exercise um, that has informed a lot of what I'm about to say now. So just firstly, I would say that I wanted to flag that we do not in Irish aid have a barrier in terms of political will, thankfully. Internally, our ministers, director general, senior management, etc., are very much behind locally led development as one of our core values. And in Ireland, we're quite lucky to have a very strong domestic political support for our aid programme in general. However, in saying that, um, I think I really identified with some of Julia's research actually on the finding around diverse interpretations. Um, so, so looking at locally led development for Irish aid, it's very much part of our ethos. Our main, our main policy objective is around putting the furthest behind first. And we've always really aimed to implement, implement this through working at a community level, putting pe people at the center of what we do, you know, taking a very principled and partnership approach. But in saying that, because it's seen as part of our ethos, it can also be taken for granted. So there can be some lack of clarity in our organization about the localization agenda and what it means for us. Some colleagues may feel that it's kind of, you know, it's our bread and butter, we're already doing it and therefore nothing needs to change. Obviously, that's not the case um, and we definitely have work to do. So I think the first roadblock that I wanted to highlight is really internally getting people to agree on a consistent approach. And just to flag that if we don't do that, we risk having all of this commitment, but without the action. Uh, the second barrier that I wanted to flag is both an opportunity and a challenge. Um, so Irish Aid is, is quite good in terms of being a flexible donor. So, you know, we provide a lot of flexible quality multi-year funding which is obviously an important enabler of locally led development. So obviously just a couple of examples in, in terms of our humanitarian work, at least 80% of our humanitarian funding is flexible. We fund the START network, a lot of country-based pool funds, that, which prioritize local partners. Also at HQ level, we have an INGO fund um, that provides multi-year flexible funding across both development and humanitarian work. And a significant percentage of that is, is on granted to local organizations. However, in saying that, 
this flexibility can actually be a bit of a double-edged sword in terms of, especially in terms of that on-granting to local organizations. So on the one hand, you have intermediary NGOs and multilateral organizations who are fully permitted by Irish Aid to kind of pass on that same flexibility to their local partners, including, just let me say that, you know, the indirect cost or core cost. But on the other hand, because we haven't really been prescriptive, um, there has been a mixed approach, I would say, and uh, maybe a bit of confusion and ambiguity in terms of our own, you know, what we want from our partners. And so we're trying to address that internally at the moment through working with INGO partners, in particular through this HQ fund, so that they develop their own approach to locally led development. And so that includes kind of benchmarks for quality funding that is on granted to local partners. The third stumbling block that I, I really want to highlight is, is actually our size. So Irish Aid, obviously, we have big ambitions as a donor, but we are quite small. Um, I would say our embassies are our main channel to provide direct funding to local actors and around a third of our bilateral spending country goes to local actors. However, our embassies are again quite small and our footprint is small. We often don't have a, a physical presence in many of the countries where, where we deliver aid. Um, you know, when preparing for the DAC peer learning exercise, I remember a colleague saying that if we wanted to do more on localization, we'd need more staff and less money. And, you know, I know that this is a bit of a, it's a perception around direct funding to local partners requiring you know, increased burden on staff or increased administrative, um, you know, time of staff, etc. that, you know, increased grant management. And I know that that's something that we need to get around, but that is definitely something that's a barrier for us at the moment, I think, and something that we need to think a bit more creatively about. Um, I also just wanted to flag that as a small donor, obviously, we, we work closely with multilateral partners and we do lean on the multilateral system as a way to enhance our impact. We also try and influence multilateral partners on doing more to localize, but it's quite hard to track whether that influencing is actually, you know, is actually doing anything. Lastly, I just wanted to flag risk because obviously we can't have this conversation without <laughs> without mentioning risk. And, you know, it was quite interesting for us in the DAC peer learning exercise because we really unpacked the assumption around risk being a main barrier for us. And actually, we discovered that it kind of isn't. So, um, you know, we, we obviously have compliance measures, counter fraud policies. But we try not to make those overly burdensome. Um, we, we also try not to let risk get in the way of implementing our policy objectives, for example, around furthest behind first. So I just wanted to flag that, and this has probably happened to us internally, that this you know, perception around risk inversion can be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at times where we just assume that you know, the risk is too high and therefore we can't do it. But actually it may not be the case, and especially on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, there's there's often arguments to be made to waive certain compliance measures, etc. There was a recent example in Sudan where we support emergency rooms through um, an intermediary partner. And, you know, that's something support to local partners where they can't meet all those compliance measurements. But but we do it anyway. So I'll, I'll finish there. I'm sorry. I've, I'm kind of speeding through, um, you know, just to say we're doing a bit. But, you know, there is quite a lot to do, I would say still. Thank you. Thanks, Orla, for that um, honest and open reflection. 
Um, I'll turn to Peter now. Um, so Peter, you know, you, you're leading a, a very large foundation and it'd be really interesting to hear about whether those bottlenecks that Orla mentioned dovetail with any of, of the ones that you faced um, or not. Um, so where where are there lessons that the official sector can learn from? Um, and, you know, are, are the challenges just fundamentally different? I did note that you have signed a memorandum of understanding with USAID recently. So also maybe talking a bit about what, what the objective is um, in, in partnering with the official sector in that way. Is it is it lesson learning or is it something else? Over to you. Sure. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. And I'm really thrilled that there's so much interest in this in this topic. Uh, and and. I would like to say a little bit about the philanthropic experience of it, but also really salute what the bilaterals have set out to do. Even though the road is long, I, I think it, um, it's something we should all support. Uh, our experience of locally led development, I think has been a positive one. And it, there's a lot of uh, momentum, I would say. It aligns with our set of values. And also when we looked at, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, when we said, what is our commitment globally to DEI, it was pretty much a no-brainer to say we should really put our shoulders to locally-led development. Uh, we have been a foundation that for decades has said about half of our funding should be spent globally, half in the United States. But historically, we did that primarily through big blue-chip U.S. nonprofits, World Vision, Care, Save the Children, uh, and they did extremely good work. Um, but I think that was it was mostly familiarity, a little bit of tax compliance, and just what we knew how to do. Uh, so when we when the World Humanitarian Summit said 25%, our ears perked up. When Samantha Power said, we're going to go in as well, we said, hey, we should really get involved in this. And we started a whole of org effort to, uh, to get beyond a 25% goal. Uh, how do we source and know who is out there? Uh, how do we make proposals simple? How do we do the due diligence in ways that are not um, that are not over overpowering, overwhelming for either the grantee or for our own staff? Uh, how do we deal with compliance and risk issues uh, and and legal issues? So we have uh, and and how can we get the board uh, actually to very full throated support of this? Uh, and it I think it worked quite well. Now there is risk, uh, and and there will be there will be mistakes. Uh, but you know we know that if we if we grant money through international NGOs, ten or fifteen percent or more will evaporate entirely legitimately in going through their processes to get close to a community or a, a local setting. So we're willing to take some risk uh, in in that regard. Um, it has been uh, I think largely successful. We we met the twenty five percent target in twenty twenty two, just barely I'll say. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, we were probably at 10% typically. Uh, and then this year, uh, we, we more considerably surpassed it. Uh, and also for the moment, uh, hearkening to a, a comment you made, Nilima, I think, uh, at the beginning, uh, we are one, alarmingly, we are the largest funder in the world of refugee-led organizations. That's a baton we want to pass back to, to the multilaterals to, uh, and to, other, to bilaterals here, uh, but come on in, the water is warm and there's lots that could be done there. Uh, I, I would emphasize this is not just about community-based organizations, even not just civil society organizations. We're also including municipalities in, um, in, in the portfolio. And I think that's a really important and significant um, uh, addition. Uh, I would say, you know, just like 
most of the bilaterals here, and certainly I think most of the civil society organizations listening, there are kind of two levels you think about this. One is a, a financial accountability level. I think of that as locally led development 1.0. Um, are you getting a robust share of your funding to local organizations? But I think the harder thing, and I would disagree with the speaker who said the financial is the hardest. The hardest thing is co-creating, uh, sharing strategy development. Uh, and that for, for us is locally led development 2.0. We're still on that road. Uh, and if you know, uh, you know, strategic philanthropy is very attached to its goal setting. So sharing goal setting, I think, is going to be the real challenge for us. But I think we will do it robustly. You asked about the collaboration with USAID. Well, first of all, I, I would love to uh, uh, salute that donor statement. I'll put it in the chat later on. It is poetic. It's lyrical. It could have been written by a civil society organization or a foundation. It was written by bilaterals. Uh, hats off to USAID and NORAD for that, but to all 19 uh, governments that have signed that. And it gives everyone on this call great leverage to push because you have that full-throated uh, commitment. So our signing of the MOU is kind of looking at things that are shared, um, nuts that we both have to crack. Intermediaries is a big thing for both bilateral donors and for foundations. And I'd say local intermediaries, because often we've done offshore intermediaries and, and the development of that sort of uh, group of, um, of organizations, I think is really important. Uh, we're also exploring whether there is a value chain from philanthropy to bilateral funding whether our grantees can graduate, if you like. And the way I'm kind of looking at that right now is we're angel investors, AID and others are series B, and we got to figure out where series A is, what it's like, because the handshake isn't obvious yet. I'd also say we're um, trying to organize philanthropy on both sides of the Atlantic. As, as was said, 15 foundations, mostly US, have signed that donor statement, and I believe in May at the European Philanthropic Conference, there will be more on the European side. I urge foundations to get in touch with their own bilaterals and work together. And finally, I'd say, you know, I, I think we all really need to work on a strong learning agenda, looking at you, ODI, because this work is based on a hypothesis. It's a robust hypothesis that getting resources close to where the problems are is going to improve impact, but we need to prove that as well. And it goes beyond just operational tweaks. But so if if those on the call who are researchers can really put their heads together on helping us do that, it I think it will be very good for the long, long-term robustness of the agenda. Thanks. Thanks so much, Peter. Great call to action for the researchers um, among us, um, which we will definitely take to heart. Um, I'll pass along to Moses now. Um, so Moses would love your your thoughts in this conversation. You, you know, you've written several pieces um, where you've argued that you know donors should take a vaccine approach, um, not a paracetamol approach to funding local actors. Um, keeping in mind, it's not all about funding, um, but but nevertheless, um, I, I I'd be curious, what does a vaccine approach imply? You know, when we think about it in medical terms, it's about prevention. It's not targeting um, symptoms, but causes, let's say, of of disease. Um, and and what does this vaccine approach imply? for the role and, and functions of a 21st century uh, donor. So I'll, I'll pass it over to you now, Moses. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Nirma. Um, I, I think we all in agreement that the dominant system uh, in development of humanitarianism really needs change. I mean, others have said structural fraud, others have been, been uh, said it's 
pathologically ill. And I think we all agree on one thing that something must be done differently. Uh, I think for a long time, I think, you know, donors, whether it's bilateral donors or foundations, have kept civil society organizations on some form of starvation life cycle, giving them a little bit of money on uh, that keeps them really, you know, starvation life cycle. And so right now, uh, the, the talk is really about localization or locally led development, which we think is uh, an sort of like a reaction to the shift of the power movement. Uh, which is coming from the the from the global south, where we're saying we need to change uh, the way we're doing business, whether it is donors, whether it's foundations, and so we're not quite sure whether really when we talk about local led development, whether there is the the desire, the interest to change, or it is a result of fear of an existential threat that something must be done. I mean, we've heard severally that you know uh, donors, whether bilaterals or foundations and even INGOs, that they perhaps would have to transform or die well or die badly. And so I think what we really think uh, that, you know, if we're gonna be true to uh, localization or if we want to see what locally led development see the light of the day, that there are three simple things that we do. And of course, being post uh, COVID pandemic, I use the analogy of a vaccine. And I think if you're gonna have two, three uh, doses, the first dose, that there should be a conscious and deliberate effort for donors and foundations to provide direct funding. Uh, that is dose number one. Dose number two is that, you know, we need to be as much as possible also giving unrestricted funding. And the, the booster dose perhaps and the last dose there would be a multi-year funding uh, and not, do, not looking at a one or, uh, one or two years. So for me, when you look at these three, uh, the direct funding and restricted funding and multi-year funding is what I really call the vaccine approach, as opposed to the paracetamol approach, which is the usual business as usual, which keeps uh, many of the uh, organizations in a starvation life cycle. But that said, I think a couple of things that needs to be paid attention to. I mean, we all talk about localization uh, and locally led development. But I think we need to, to also be able to talk what it is not, because oftentimes we talk about what it is, what we want to do, but what it is not. I think what it is not is that localization is not about cutting down transaction costs, because we see a number of you know, foundations and donors trying to look at the ways of the cutting down transaction costs. If anyone does that, you are far away from localization or from local development. And also localization is not about uh, subcontracting. Uh, so I think if you know that it's not, local, it's not subcontracting, it's not uh, uh, cutting down transaction costs, then there are a couple of other things that we do, which will actually also constitute the vaccine approach. One is that we need to take a conscious and deliberate departure from risk transfer, risk sharing. And what that means is that you know, whatever type you know, donors, foundations, they're going to have us to up up their appetite for risk and, and, and look at the ways that risk can be shared rather than where we see risk is being passed on from the back donor and you know, to, the, to those of us in, uh, in, in the South. And then of course, every time we're talking about localization, this, the central linchpin is money. And what I always say is that when it comes to development, I think it is important to not take off the blinkers that it's really it's not only about money, because even us in the communities that we work with, they also have money, albeit very small volume.
So communities have money, communities have got skills, the communities have got local knowledge and, and, and relationships. And I think that is important to pay attention to. So I think what we need to be talking is not only money, but how we can leverage these community assets. When we leverage these community assets, then we're able to trigger community voice, we're able to trigger community power, and we're then we're able to be able to, 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 to provide agency, which is really, really what we need. So I, I think for me, really, finally, I think first of all, we even need to be moving away from just talking about local led development. Um, I, I think that's a little bit mechanistic. And, and I think inequality, core issues of these funding relations, which are really not partnerships, we need to be talking about decolonization. Uh, I think that is what will really be able to address the, the, the key issue. We need to be talking about how we can decolonize knowledge, how we can decolonize language and lexicon. Because here we're really praying about the semantics of its localization, its locally led development. What is it exactly? And no wonder, you know, Sarah started with a caveat that you don't like the term. So I think it is important that we address ourselves to the language and lexicon. on the journey of actually doing development by donors or foundations is indeed in the hospice and, and we must change uh you know to be able to ensure i know that my time is is, is spent i'll keep it at that thanks moses and thanks for cutting out uh, the camera because i think we were you were in and out a little bit so i think we heard the, the last bit much more clearly um um, I'm gonna I'm gonna just sort of move into to Q and A because there's a lot of um, a lot of questions here and a lot of them kind of pick up on this point about about vocabulary and terminology, um, the use the differences between localization and and locally led development, um, and you know there's one question here which I think um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and direct maybe maybe to Peter because Peter you talked about the um, the lyrical nature of the donor statement on supporting locally led development. Um, and, and, you know, we have a question from Viveka Karlistam here, who has said that perhaps using the term locally led development is, is more practical now um, because of that statement um, and because of the ambition it shows. And, and in, in Swedish CETA, um, that is the term that is, that is being used. Um, so I don't know if you have a, a comment on that or, or, you know, linking back to Moses's point around the difference between localization and decolonization and what we need to be talking about is decolonization. Um, yeah. If you have any thoughts on that. Uh, I think that we we will never be satisfied with with the vocabulary. So I think there will be grist for many webinars on, on this. Uh, I I think that uh, well I I don't want to speak for the bilaterals, but uh, I think it would be hard for them to march under a decolonization banner. But I think really look at the statement and what is said in it. Look at what the agencies have allowed themselves to be held accountable for. And, and admittedly, they are far from it, far, far from either the numerical targets or actually um, delivering on, on the qualitative promise. But when someone makes a declaration, you can hold them accountable for it. And, and I think you, with both carrot and stick, I, I, I support many, many, well, virtually everything that Moses said. Uh, and I think we need to work in, a, in an encouraging way with folks as well. Because um, 
you know, this this is the third time AID has tried this. This is, in my estimation, there is much more opportunity to actually move this time than the previous two. And it's uh, it's just our judgment. It's good to put our shoulder to helping that happen. Thanks, Peter, for that. Um, there's another question here, and I'm going to direct this to, to Orla, perhaps, on pooled funds, because Orla, I think you mentioned the multilateral um, engagement. So the question is, what is the accountability of the leads on localization in, in pooled funds? I hear a growing number of donors perceiving their contribution to pooled funds as a localization tool, but the percentage of budgets actually direct to national organizations is often very low in those pooled funds, even below 25%. Um, I don't know if you had a comment on that. No, look, it's, I mean, it's one tool and it's not perfect. Um, I just, I mean, in terms of how we do locally led development at the moment, in an ideal world, we would do more direct funding, but just practically speaking, again, back to my point on being a small donor, it's quite challenging, you know, to, to manage lots of different grants, etc. So, I mean, from our perspective, the pool funds are, you know, are, are quite positive. Um, but I do. I have heard some issues with the quality of the the funding that is passed on as well. So that's something that we advocate about quite actively as Ireland as well. Um, when we can, you know, in terms of our advocacy in the multilateral space, we do try and influence to ensure that there's quality funding being passed, etc. But but it's a fair point. I think it's a fair point. <laughs> Great, thanks. Um, and, and Julia, um, the question here about shifting incentives and decision-making, so these recommendations are implemented. You talked about taxation rules. Um, and I mean, what is the incentive to shift that? Where has the movement been in Canada and what might others learn globally from mm -hmm. the Canadian experience, particularly on CRA rules? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think um, the incentive was localization, that the conversation around and, and, and predates that in terms of the efficacy aid and having, you know, uh, equitable partnerships. So that conversation from the international assistance sector then filtered down to them coming together and saying, well, these CRA laws are totally antithetical to that because of this direction and control rule. So it was actually, you know, quite linked to the to the sector and the pushback, even though the charitable sector also exists in Canada. It's the same rules that apply for both. Um, so I think, yeah, having the sector, having forums and spaces to engage with what localization means from a mechanism standpoint um, in Canada, but also abroad, just to, to dig into the mechanisms that actually limit and impede. Tax laws are very obvious, right? But there's other things within governing um, government agencies in terms of their um, their decision making around how they're going to measure success. That can also be pushed back if we have uh, structured discussions around what does localization look like and what are the the features that that impede it. So I think it means that there must be a robust sector engagement on this topic, and that's why I was saying you need it coming from both sides because if donors want this to happen, they also have to you know. I don't know if pressure is the right word, but they have to provide guidance um, for, for the sector because not everyone in the sector is doing this, right? And then similarly, the sector has to pressure the government who is saying they want this, but isn't changing their um, their stance. And I think that it, it's, you know, it it's nation-based, but it's also a global movement to, to make these changes. Great, Thank, thanks for that. Um, 
Rosie, I'm going to direct one here on on metrics. Um, there's a question about how the, the struggle to to develop metrics and clear definitions of success, um, and I'm wondering, you know, what what your thoughts are on on the whole kind of metric debate. I know you've been giving some thought to to measurement issues recently. Very good question, and not not a very easy one to answer. Um, I think I think metrics are often you know, they are part of the DNA of the how donors work, and it's understandable that people want to development of them and track progress on the commitments that they have made. But at the same time, I think they come with some risks. Um, particularly, you know, part of what locally led development is or should be is a kind of bottom up, context led approach. And as soon as metrics or corporate donor-wide metrics are introduced, um, it suddenly becomes a compliance regime enforced from the top. And I think there's understandable um, resistance to that. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes also metrics can precede the ability to actually achieve them, and therefore they can lead to quite a lot of frustration and perhaps a distraction uh, from, I mean, perhaps having indicators, indicators around funding are obviously very important, um, but they don't, the 25% don't capture these issues around power and transferring power and the, and decolonization. And if we become fixated with how much funding is reaching local actors, perhaps we are not paying enough attention to those, what I consider to be more challenging and more important aspects of, of um, localization or if not decolonization and shifting power. Um, so I think that would be, those would be my reflections on that question. Thanks, Rosie. Um, Moses, there's a question here, kind of picking up on your desire to move the terminology to, towards decolonization from Majabin Kader, who asks, while localization is championed as a decolonization effort, how can it move beyond rhetoric to address those deeply entrenched power imbalances? In other words, isn't the decolonization move just so threatening to to a donor. How do they practically engage without without you know basically um, asking for their own demise, so to speak? Um, love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, oftentimes we think that the whole subject of decolonization is is quite threatening. And uh, so the quickest route to take is to talk about something which is mechanistic, it's an easy fix, you can you know, sprinkle in a bit of tools and frameworks, uh, but not really be able to address the, the root cause. Because, I mean, uh, we know that some foundations are sunsetty, uh, others like Lankelly Chess in the UK has given over 35 million pounds to, to, to communities. I think for me, those are foundations that are really putting their money where their mouth is. And, and if you're gonna do that, then you've got to go the full breadth. And, uh, and, and I, mean, I mean, the people that work in, uh, in, the, in the foundations and bilateral donors, to be brutally honest, they are rational individuals. Some of them have cut their teeth and perhaps that's what they've all, all worked. And so it can be, uh, it can be quite threatening. They can be looked at as an existential threat. And so what we're actually seeing is there are a bit of resistance dots within uh, donors and within bilateral donors. And yet there is a desire to speak to aspects of change. Uh, the, the appetite is really not to go the full length, 
So the appetite is to go towards something which is a bit simpler. Uh, so I think we need to go to the full length of decolonization and address the really root causes. And I think also important that, that I did mention is that we need to be addressing language and lexicon. I think development as was coined by President Harry Truman uh, is, is, is a concept, you know, and then we talk all about this uh, development jargons, uh, language which is colonial, which is racist, which is pejorative. I think all that needs to really needs to be changed. So language and lexicon is an important ingredient of the conversation that we're talking about. Thanks, thanks, Moses. Um, one last question, maybe for Sarah. Um, the comment about research, Sarah, um, and you know Peter's Peter's comment. There, there's also a question in the in the chat here. Um, intrigued by Peter's comments, and you know, he, he, agreeing that it's crucial for locally led approaches to lead to greater development impact and to show that. But if it's crucial, then isn't it important who defines the impact? Is it defined by the donors, um, by the researchers? I would add, and by the communities in the local context. Don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I completely agree. And that's something, as you know, that I've been trying to push internally as well in terms of how we develop our research priorities. Where do we start? You know, who defines them? It's not for us or for the donors. If you're really serious about you know, research that can um, really shine a light on you know, the challenges in a more direct way, it needs to be framed, set, led um, by colleagues that are closer to where you know, these challenges are. And so we need to flip it on its head. And, but the problem is that, you know, that there is a question that is really interesting in terms of how we adapt our approaches as research organizations, think tanks, I would say, and donor approaches to get closer to how you know, our partners um, can respond and lead. Because we're always expecting them you know, to fit with our frameworks and our priorities and the way in which we organize the research, the metrics by which we judge what is successful, what is impact, what is quality of research, rather than sort of looking at what is fundamental. Is the whole, you know, these discussions about capacity, another term that I really have a lot of issues with, because, you know, we, we measure the capacity to write in English or, you know, sort of abide by some, you know, academic reference points that we have created as the donors, you know, judge the capacity to fit into a log frame. But we never judge our capacity to work in a context in which we have no historical knowledge, no you know, deep knowledge of uh, uh, the power dynamics, you know, understand the nuances. And so it's, it's reframing. Moses is absolutely right. This lexicon, this taxonomy to become clearer about what we're trying to achieve and how, you know, led by those who obviously will know better because they are right at the heart of the issues that we're trying to address. Great, thanks for that, um, Sarah. I'm sorry I don't have a chance to to answer all the other questions, but um, I'll put my uh, someone can put my email in the chat, and I'll help you to try and direct those or or answer them myself at a later date. Um, I did want to quickly close with maybe a 20 second statement from each of you in terms of you know what is the single most important thing um, that that a donor needs to do to to overcome well, the most important barrier, and then the single most important thing they need to do to overcome it, I suppose. Um, why don't we start in reverse order? Moses, 20 seconds on, on your solution. I, I think that the single most important thing is for any donor to un understand and appreciate that the main purpose of aid is to stop aid. Great, so very the clear. The reason we give aid is to stop aid. 
So Very clear. I think with that, with that at the back of your mind, every time a foundation, a donor is giving aid, he should be working himself or herself out of job. And so you want to do everything that aid should be able to stop aid. Great. Peter? Yeah, I, I agree with the comments that uh, have been about donor humility, uh, working with people. And this is fundamentally about right relationship and good donorship, in addition to really supporting what's going on uh, at the grassroots. Great. Humility. Thanks. Orla? Oh. Sorry, I couldn't unmute myself. <laughs> um, just, I just wanted to echo what Moses said. I think, I think it's knowing what our end goal is and being clear about that. Because I feel like sometimes we're having these conversations a lot and we're talking about different, what we mean by success. We're different in that. So I think coming, coming to some consensus on that would be great. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Julia. I'm going to have to echo what Moses said in terms of that, um, you know, we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. So what are the paths? Yep. An actual plan, I'm speaking of Canadian government, but a plan to get there um, with timelines and also, you know, uh, intersecting uh, features of what that looks like uh, beyond aid as well. Great. And lastly, Rosie? Yeah, for me, I mean, out of the five barriers that we identified, Undoubtedly, the, the most important one is um, the power asymmetry, the power imbalance. And I think this is about perhaps this response to how the end game of localization is really about shifting power and putting local decision making and local leadership at the heart of localization, what it is and what it wants to achieve. Great. Thank you so much um, to all of you for this conversation. I know it, it could have been longer. Um, Please, if you had a question and we weren't able to address it and you, you, you really, it's a burning one, send me an email and I will try and cobble together an answer. Um, please do keep in touch. Um, we've put the link to the newsletter and several pieces of, of research and statements and, and rules and regulations. I can see CRA rules are up there. That'll make a good bedtime read. Um, and thank you again to, to our audience and our, our panelists, especially for joining us. Um, wish you a good end of day and let's keep in touch.